Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast, your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America, with your host, Scott Speed. Hello and welcome to Race Haven Live. My name is Dr. Scott Speed and I appreciate you being here. This is part two of a series of live shows called America We Need to Talk. And it is designed to be a dialogue where we, you and I, can learn and communicate our way towards collective solutions to the social challenges facing America. I'm I'm piloting this live show idea to see how it goes over the course of this month so if you like this format, please let me know on social media or through email at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com. Join me here each Wednesday this month at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time to hear my commentary on a variety of relevant topics <clears throat> and to share your questions, concerns, hopes, and solutions about any topic involving race relations and social issues in America. My agenda My agenda is to work towards the ideal of us all being one nation, indivisible. And we're going to do that using the communication skill of dialogue. And in order for dialogue to be effective, there has to be common ground to work from. So if you agree with this ideal that our country was founded on the idea of one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, then we have common ground. If you agree that this by working towards this ideal, and I emphasize work, it will make America uh, a better place for our children and grandchildren, then we have common ground. And if we have common ground, less dialogue. There's nothing that we can't get through, even if we disagree on some things. If we have that common ground, I believe that we can work towards solutions together, and that's what this show is designed to do. So with that being said, to join the dialogue, simply dial 929 477 4107 and press one. So the show lineup for today, my uncommon commentary will start out the show. And this is basically me thinking out loud, excuse me, me thinking out loud. Usually uh, I say uncommon commentary because it's usually different than what I'm hearing or reading uh, out there. So that's why I call it uncommon. And my uncommon commentary topic today is going to be me challenging the belief that group economics more college degrees, and more voting will solve issues facing African-American people. I'm also going to share some radical solutions. Also, the show is going to include your calls, your questions, your comments. They can be about my commentary, or it could be anything, um, you know, revolving around race relations and social issues in America. You can call up with your questions or comments or perspectives uh, and share them with me today. And then we're going, to have, we're going to close out with our In the Media segment. And this is where I share my perspective about a topic, a hot topic being discussed in social media and the news media. And today I'm going to share some thoughts about uh, the comments from Ben Carson on uh, enslaved Africans being immigrants who came to America. Um, well, I'll just leave it there for now. So, you know, we'll get into that a little bit more, a, a little bit later. So to start things out, I'm going to get into some of my uncommon commentary. And before I do that, I want to, you know, just preface just for those who may be new to the show that 
the, the, the concept of dialogue is the foundation of this show. I don't believe in debate. I don't believe in arguing. I don't believe in debating. I believe in dialogue. And there are several tenets to dialogue, but the one that I want to share to preface the, the comments that I'm about to make, uh, there's two. I want to share this, and I'm going to compare it to debate. Because, you know, we live in a debate-based society, and we all went to school learning about debates and debate clubs, but no one ever actually taught dialogue. Uh, so that's one of the things that I attempt to do through this show. So in dialogue, one submits one's best thinking, knowing that other people's reflections will help improve it rather than destroy it. To contrast that, in debate, one submits one's best thinking and defends it against challenge to show that it is right. So what you're going to hear from me and my thoughts and my commentary, uh, I already know from some of the comments and responses I've gotten on Facebook that uh, many, many people find them disagreeable. And I want you to know right from the onset that I'm not here to say that I'm right. I'm not here to you know, say, say that I'm right and that you're wrong. I'm here to submit my best thinking. And I know that other people's reflections will help improve it. And I'm not afraid of it being destroyed because I'm, you know, I'm working towards solutions just like many of you. You know, we invest a lot of time and energy thinking about these things. And if you're listening to this show, I know that you share that with me and that you invest a lot of time and energy. So I want to hear from you and understand that, you know, uh, I, I, I am not submitting, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm having some issues today. Uh, I'm not submitting my thoughts in an attempt to, to be right. I'm submitting them in an attempt to share my best thinking out loud and with the hopes that you all will improve on it. The next thing is this. Dialogue assumes that many people have pieces of the answer and that together they can develop them into a workable solution. Debate assumes that there is a right answer and that someone has it. Again, this is a dialogue show. I assume that we all don't read the same information. I assume that we all don't come from the same household. We don't come from the same community. We don't call, come from the same education. So therefore, we all have different perspectives. And I think that's okay. I think that's a good thing. It's impossible for everyone to know everything. So again, I assume that I only have part of the answers based on the direction I've chosen to go with my, my research in, in an attempt to find solutions. But I believe that you all have solutions as well. And we want to hear them. So please call up and share them. You see, one of my biggest issues with the commentary that we hear in traditional uh, news media as well as within uh, you know, our leadership in, in terms of politics, is that it's all debate-based. It's that we have to have these experts who have to know everything and what they say is right. Um, and you know, even in the way our, our politics are posited, uh, it's about you know, one side is right and the other side is wrong. And it's, it's like black and white, and they don't make any room for gray. And you know, we live in a world of complexity and a world of gray, a world of nuance and layers and levels. So with all that being said, you know, I hope that you know, we can unpeel some of that nuance and layers through this dialogue today. So to get into my uncommon commentary, you know, again, I, I like to preface things just by saying that um, I'm going to leave out a lot of context, okay? Um, and I know that you guys are going to help me. You're going to call in and you're going to help me uh, to fill in some of the context of what I leave out, uh, but I'm going to share my best thinking. I'm going to do my best, uh, but I want you all to call up uh, by simply dialing 929-477-4107 and press one to jump in. Okay. So with that being said, let's get into it. So I posted something on Facebook um, and trust me, I already got some feedback on it. So I already know that some people are disagreeable with what I shared. 
But my comments was this. I, I basically said what I said to you on the onset, that I'm going to challenge, um, you know, the belief that group economics, more college degrees, and more voting will solve issues facing African-American people. And I posted uh, an article that said, um, you know, something to effect that, hey, news media, uh, white people are poor too. And I shared some information on Facebook about the fact that, you know, 70% of um, African-Americans are not poor. And I shared that, you know, a certain percentage of, um, well, the article goes into sharing, you know, figures about, you know, quote unquote, white poverty um, and things like that. And, and I thought that the article provide a level of context. And what I want you all to know is that I'm having this conversation from an economic standpoint, not from a race relations standpoint, from a position of privilege or anything like that. I'm looking at this from, from uh, the perspective of economics uh, and, and our economic system right now. So I want you to put your economic lens on as you listen to the things that I'm about to say. Um, but that article, you know, it rubs some people the wrong way. I'm sorry, the article, as well as my comments, you know, just based on some feedback I received already, it rubs some people the wrong way because they felt like I was trying to compare, you know, African-Americans, um, you know, struggles with poverty and obviously uh, all the historical conditions and even and present day conditions um, that that lead to that poverty with European-American poverty. And that's not what I was trying to do from a race relation standpoint in terms of just, um, you know, again, uh, the the issues of, you know, uh, privilege and social justice, et cetera. I was comparing it from an economic, I'm sorry, I wanted to post, share that post to share some economic uh, numbers. So I wanna get into, you know, some of the thought process that went into that. So basically, you know, as I drive around Atlanta, where I live right now, I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, I currently live right outside of Atlanta. You know, Atlanta is one of those places that um, you see a lot of African-American affluence. And it's one of the primary places. There's pockets of of African American affluence, excuse me, affluence all throughout the country in various cities, uh, but uh, is a lot of it is concentrated uh, in a, in a major way in Atlanta. And when I when I process all of the conversations going on that I'm hearing uh, when I'm in African American spaces and conscious spaces or listening to uh, other you know or African American radio stations or other podcasts and things like that, I often hear people speak about the African American experience. Um, in general terms, as if, uh, well, they speak about the challenges facing um, African-Americans economically. Again, when we're speaking strictly economically, not talking about social justice issues um, right now, but stri strictly in an economic sense. When I hear, when I'm in these spaces and I hear people speaking about things from an economic um, you know, standpoint about African-Americans, I always, I, I always tend to hear um, I'm sorry, I mean, not you, I, I don't like making generalizations like always. So let me say, I, I tend to hear uh, comments like African-Americans, you know, don't, um, you know, do X, Y, Z, uh, or we don't know, we don't know how to save. Uh, we don't know how to invest. And, you know, we don't know how to take advantage of, you know, economic system or, you know, we are too busy watching social media or, you know, uh, reality TV and all these various things. I'm, I hear these blanket statements using we, 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 and it's usually speaking to the lowest common denominator of the African American, um, you know, experience in terms of where African American people fall on the socioeconomic ladder. And the reality is, African American people fall on every layer of the socioeconomic 
or every level of the social economic ladder in America. And I happen to be in Atlanta, so I get to see a large segment of the affluence uh, within that, within the African-American community. So when I'm in these communities, when I'm in certain communities in Atlanta, and I sit around, I sit in my car and I look around and I see these homeowners, right? Let's just say, you know, let's just call it middle class all the way up to affluent, right? And in Atlanta, you have many, many dozens, if not hundreds of communities that have hundreds of households with people that fall within the category of middle class to affluent. And especially when I'm sitting in the, in the various affluent communities, let's just say homes that have, I mean, communities with homes um, that range from 300 to 500,000 up to a million dollars, you know, type homes. And I sit in these communities and I literally see dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds of households, and 90% of those communities are African-American. And I see you know, what we tend to, to see as outward examples of success, you know, big, big houses and luxury cars. And I'm looking at these things, but then I'm running through my mind some of the commentary that I'm hearing when people say what we, quote unquote, we don't do or quote unquote, we don't have. And something's not vibing in my mind when I, when I, when I listen to that, that narrative, because then in addition to that, I look around at my peers and I look around at you know, people that I grew up with and people that I went to college with. And I see people winning in ways that their parents or grandparents didn't win or, or weren't winning. And granted, let's say this, their parents and grandparents, they laid the foundation to put them in a position to win at, a, at another level, right? At a, at a higher level on the social economic scale. So you know, when I look around, I see you know, African-American people graduating from, you know, African-American universities, uh, you know, all uh, HBCUs, historically black, co black colleges and universities um, at record rates. And I see, you know, I went to my cousin's graduation at Florida A&M. My entire large, large segment of my family went to Florida A&M. Uh, literally mom, dad, grandfather, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, uh, everybody went to Florida A&M except for me, but everyone went to Florida A&M. So I'm always going to graduations, it seems like, every few years at Florida A&M. And I'm seeing all these African-American, uh, you know, young people graduating. And I know that this is happening all across the country. And the majority of them are going to graduate at least to a middle class standing, uh, you know, in the world, you know, generally speaking. And, and in America, they're going to graduate to a middle class level. And I think to myself, hmm. That doesn't vibe with some of these narratives about what we aren't doing. I look around at, you know, um, all of the, the people I know whose children are going to private schools and, and, and various things and the homeowners and, you know, all these various outward indicators of success. And we all know success is relative uh, and an outward indicators don't tell the full story. But just for the sake of what we can see, it appears that large segments of African-American people in this country are winning and at a different level than what I saw growing up, right? So when I, when I see that and I listen to these narratives, you know, it just, again, something's not vibing with me with the narrative about what we aren't doing and with the narrative of, you know, African-American people are struggling at a certain level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I know, and again, I'm hearing the voices, so just stick with me uh, where I'm going with this. I already hear the, the, the people, some, some, some blood boiling on some of you listeners right now based on some conversations I've had uh, where people tend to point out, you know, well, Scott, those people are the exception. You are the exception. And here's what I think about that. 
Well, my grandfather on my father's side was an exception. He graduated with a college degree. And he was born in 1920, and he went on to, to graduate with a college degree. And he was an exception. He, he was a, a cycle breaker, as I like to call it. So that put my, his kids and in turn me in a position to be legacy builders because he broke the cycle of poverty within his family uh, heritage and his, you know, lineage. And, but from my grandfather's position, you know, he had four children. So now that was, he was one exception, but because he was an exception, his four kids were automatically born into a household that had a level of privilege that put them in the position to go out into the world and be exceptions. So now all of them, uh, including one, well, one of, one of uh, my uncles is deceased, but the other three were educators and an attorney. And literally, my uncle was a principal, my dad was, is a retired teacher, and my aunt is an attorney. And they all, you know, again, that's a level, they all achieve a level of success. And then obviously, their children, they all had children. So now the family tree is growing. And then that, that growth and that, that, um, that exception that we're speaking about, it grows exponentially. Right. So that's what's happening all across America. We have people who've broken cycles and you see the success and you see the progress growing exponentially. And then with that being said, when I think about things from that level, I, I can understand how, you know, more and more people are winning, more and more people are breaking cycles and then their children and their children and their children, et cetera, et cetera, is going to grow exponentially. You see the same thing. OK, let me say it like this. And when you look at the fact that African-American people have only had access to the full American dream since 1970 in the eyes of the law, after all the civil rights laws were passed and after all those battles were won, African-American people only had access to the full you know, uh, array of opportunity in America by law since 1970. And still there were battles that had to be fought to, you know, for, for and there's still battles being fought today. And we all know that. But with that being said, where my problem comes in, and, and what I'm challenging in one sense uh, thus far is when I hear people speak about these issues, and then when I'm in some of these, these spaces among, around African-American people, when they're making some of these blanket uh, you know, statements about we and the struggles, I also then hear them say they, but they, you know, they, this is what they do. This is how they save money. This is how they own businesses. This is how they, you know, move in the world and, and able to pass down things to their children. And the they means European Americans, right? And that when I when I hear it, it bothers me because I think it's not. I don't think it's fair. <laughs> I don't think it's fair to compare African American people uh, who are descendants of enslaved Africans and our progress collective our collective progress to the collective progress in this capitalistic system in America with Americans of European descent, because they have a several hundred year head start with having full access to the array of opportunities within the capitalistic system that makes up the quote unquote American dream. So what that means is the same picture I painted with my grandfather passing down opportunity and breaking the cycle of poverty. When, and when he started, well, there's European American families that started several hundred years before my grandfather got started with breaking the cycle in his family, and they were able to, those who came over here as immigrants several hundred years ago, were able to break those cycles and, you know, begin to build, you know, a level of uh, stability for their families, for their children and grandchildren and children to launch into higher levels of success on the socioeconomic ladder. So when you look at it at scale, it's impossible to compare because they simply had a longer time to play the game, right? 
European Americans, generally speaking, have had a longer opportunity to play the game of capitalism in America. And everything, capitalism and all of the uh, benefits, it compounds. You know, when someone owns a house for the first time, that, that, that stability, it compounds throughout the generations. When someone owns a business, it compounds. And then when you add on the fact that European Americans still make up the majority of the population, over 66%, when you look around, you're going to see European American success on a scale larger than African American success, again, simply because, A, they've had a longer time within this economy with all the full array of opportunities, and B, they outnumber African Americans significantly, 66% to 13%. So I think it's unfair to make that comparison. And then the final thing that I want to say before I open up the lines to see if there's any commentary, and again, if you want to jump in, you, you could dial the number, which is 929-477-4107 and press 1 to speak. The last thing that I want to add to my statements that I made at the beginning of the show as well as uh, on Facebook about challenging the idea of group ep- economics. I want to just stop with that one right there. You know, in, in a lot of um, uh, these circles of African Americans who, you know, are, and here's the thing, guys, when I say challenge, I'm saying challenge to continue to think through. I'm not saying challenge as if these people are wrong because I believe they're right, all right, because I believe that anyone that is thinking about solutions to a problem is right. You know, we all come at this <clears throat> from different angles. We're working at this together. So don't take my challenge as, as me saying that, you know, people are wrong. I just want to clarify that again. So what I want to challenge is that about group ep- economics. This is what I'm thinking when I'm sitting in these communities. I'm taking in what I'm seeing in Atlanta. I'm taking in uh, the things I know about my peers back home in Pennsylvania and just various places I've been throughout the country. And I'm seeing African-American people at my age winning like at a, at a larger scale because we're the next generation up and we're building on what was built before us, right? So when I see those things and I hear African-American people when there are certain issues that, that face uh, poor and working class African-American communities and I hear people saying, you know, group economics is the solution, you know, that it is the solution, this is what I think. Again, critically thinking, this is what I think to myself. Well, if group economics was the solution, then why isn't that working for European Americans? Because based on the census in 2013, 18.9 million European Americans were poor. That's 8 million more poor European American people than African American people, and 5 million more than Latino people based on the U.S. census. And again, put on your economic hat. I'm not talking about social justice and privilege issues and any, anything from that standpoint right now. I'm talking about just from a strictly economic and uh, capitalism uh, standpoint. So in my mind, I'm thinking to myself that, well, European Americans have been practicing group, ep- group economics from day one because the country is still majority, you know, homogenous and people grew up in majority, you know, homogenous communities and European American people in America still for majority live around other European American people and they have European American businesses and their dollars circulate in their community X amount of times and, you know, 18.9 million people. That's a lot of people. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. That's a lot of poor people. And that's not even talking about the levels above poverty, 
where people are still working poor, right? So a large, large, large segments of European-American people are struggling big time in this country. And again, I'm just using it as comparison. I'm not comparing it to the African-American struggle with racism and systemic racism, okay? I'm just looking at it from an economic standpoint. I'm looking at it from a sense if the, the systems that we are um, supporting in terms of capitalism, the systems that we're supporting in terms of the education system, which again, I hear African-American people say, we have to educate our own. That's the solution. But then I think, these European-American people have been educating their own from day one. So why are so many of them still poor? You know, I had the opportunity to go to college for my undergrad degree in a place called Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and it was a huge blue-collar, working-class, and, pov- and, and low-income poverty um, segments of that, of that city. And in that area of North, Northeastern PA, Wilkes-Barre-Scranton area. And by me spending about eight years in that area – it totally shifted the way I looked at poverty. It totally broke down a lot of the stereotypes that were embedded in my mind about economics and poverty being only an African-American thing because I grew up in spaces where people spoke about these issues being unique to African-American people only. And I understand why I'm not knocking any of it, but it causes me to think critically. It causes me to think about things at a different level. So, and I remember teaching in Wilkes-Barre and I had European-American kids that were in the classroom that were that that fit some of the stereotypes that I heard, you know, put on to African American people. I had European American kids in my class that were very very disengaged with the educational process. You know, I would call them some of them were some of them were lazy. You know, I had one kid when I tried to encourage him told who told me, "I just want to work at McDonald's my whole life. I don't really care about getting an education." So, it's like a lot of the things that from an economic standpoint, that I hear African-American people trumpeting will be the solution. I look at it from that standpoint when I, when I study European poverty, and I've gone on to study European poverty at deeper levels throughout my adult life. Uh, for example, I read a book called uh, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, and he speaks to the issues that European-Americans uh, in the, the Rust Belt face and in the Appalachian face. And Again, all these things just brought in my perspective. So with all that being said, I began to question, are these things the solution? Is group economics the solution? We still have, we've, I've seen and studied how those things have been going on in other communities, and it still hasn't solved poverty. And for me, the solution isn't, well, look at how many people are winning. For me, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of, look how many people are still suffering. And what I see is these systems that we're trumpeting, these systems like education and the way it's currently structured for the masses, public school education, traditional forms of education, they do what they're designed to do. It produces the exceptions, but it also produces the failures. Economics and capitalism, the way it's currently designed, it produces the exceptions, the winners, but it also produces the failures. And what I'm speaking to, I'm sorry, let me speak to the next level, politics and voting. Based on my studies, and I'll get more into it as we go, I'm going to open up the lines in a second. But again, it puts us at odds, and it was designed to do that. So it produces winners, and it produces failures by design. That's what I'm challenging. I'm not challenging any of you 
and the things you believe and why you believe them because I understand why. We all have our, our where we, we all are where we are based on what we've learned or unlearned and based on how we've been raised and our values and our indoctrination growing up. So based on what we've learned and unlearned as adults, we have formed certain opinions and perspectives and we're still growing. But what I'm challenging is the systems. I'm challenging the system of capitalism in this country. I'm challenging the system of capitalism in this country that has 11% of European Americans that are impoverished and 26% of African American people that are impoverished and 28% approximately of Native Americans that are impoverished and about 20, I believe, and I may be a little off on these numbers, but a little bit less than African American percentage, about 20% of Latino Americans who are living below the poverty line. That's what I'm challenging. I'm challenging the system of capitalism that continues to produce these results. And I'm asking all of you to think critically about doubling down the systems that capitalism have given us, like traditional education, doubling down on that and saying, I'm going to send my kids through that same system and then later on continue to complain or expect different results. So that's what I'm challenging. So that's my uncommon commentary. Um, Call up now. Tell me what you think. I'll expand as we go, but I'm going to stop there for now. Call 929-477-4107 and press 1 if you'd like to jump in and add to my perspective and the things I shared um, and, and, you know, and fill in any holes or, or challenge anything that I said in dialogue with me. I'm, I'm more than happy to listen. So we're going to go to our first caller. Uh, the caller is waiting on the line. Uh, the last four digits of your phone number is 9477. Please state your name and where you're calling from. Hey, what's going on, Scott? This is uh, Montoya here in Atlanta. What's going on, Montoya? Thanks for calling in. Hey, brother, I want to, uh, like, doing this from a critical thinking standpoint, I I, I realize I've listened to you because I've, you know, I've heard you make, pretty much I've heard this commentary before from you. You know, we're good friends or whatever. We, You know, I've challenged you on the Facebook page. But what I realize is I don't think you realize it, but you actually make the exact same general statements that you disagree with when you hear certain narratives, and I'll give you your own examples. So, um, you know, you said there may be a, a general statement about, for example, I know, and this is from an economic standpoint, but for example, you were just saying that there are narratives that people will say well, African-Americans as a group, or we'd say, well, we don't, you know, you said use the term, we don't do this. And, I, and your response this, this morning was to say, um, you know, here in Atlanta, where you are absolutely right, there are these amazing pockets of influence uh, within the African-American community. And I heard you say in response to the general statement was about how you see all of these people who are graduated from college and all these people that are living in these um, homes and, and, you know, in these pockets of influence and people that surround you so you see all of these people, and I'm going to give you one more, and then I'll explain both. And then on the flip side, I heard you speak to, as you said, you put up the article about poverty, and, and you, were, you know, when you challenged the idea of group economics, you mentioned the idea that uh, if, if it worked, how are you seeing all of these, for example, just due to the article that you put up, 
how are you seeing, you know, this 18 million whites who are living below the poverty line? So you're saying this group economics is not working. So these are the two things I would have said. So that way you knew exactly what I was talking about. So on one hand, you speak to all, you use the term, you actually use the term all these people that you see, whereas if I, wanted, if I actually showed you the numbers, you would find out that all the people you're in your circle is actually a very, very small percentage of the African-American community. On the poverty thing, just like I say, using your own example, when you say it's not working from a group economic stand, standpoint because you see, you know, 18 million Af- I mean, um, European-Americans who are below the poverty line, which you are correct. Those numbers you said are absolutely correct. It's five more million than, you know, Hispanics or African-Americans, so those numbers are correct. But in perspective, group economics plays out when you find out, for example, that the average median income for a, the, um, a European-American family right now is $141,000 versus the median wealth of African-Americans is only 15000 And so when we talk about circulation of funds, so that is with that significance of a difference, then nobody says that because the average median wealth for a European-American family, nobody says because that is the number that nobody's naive to the fact that there are still 18 million um, European-Americans who also live in poverty. But from a group economic standpoint, you don't look at a one out of ten ratio as if group economics is not working because I would jump for joy if our part as African-American, I would jump for joy. Now, I know your, your passion is to end poverty throughout the world, and I respect that, but I would jump for joy to see, for example, and I'll be quiet after this, I would jump for joy, for example, if our poverty moved to one in ten, to one in eight, like double it to improve from that because that would be a significant number. Here's the reality when you talk about exponential. There are no numbers that support the uh, exponential increase, even though we have started late. There are actually economic indicators that have seen numbers going backwards. I'll give you one example, and I'll be quiet. Here in Atlanta, for example, we know about the 2008 housing you know, thing that created our economy crash, per se. Well, when you look at even in the affluent neighborhoods, there has still been no value return to those homes, specifically in the African-American communities. But with things that are happening currently in Atlanta, because we are seeing increases outside of the, the – in the European community, their homes, they haven't, some, they haven't recovered their full 2008 values but it's about a 70% recovery, and we're seeing there's even some affluent neighborhoods in Atlanta that still haven't had a 0% recovery. So I know you don't like to make those comparisons, but the numbers don't show an exponential increase with a late start. We're seeing things go backwards. Half the boys in Georgia are graduating from high school. Only half the black boys are. That's not exponential increase, brother. Those are real numbers, so you like to say all when it's in favor, and the all ends up being a small number, or flip around and say, well, there's so many European Americans who are in poverty, 
when that's one in ten compared to one in four for Alchemist. Okay. Uh, you got some time to stick with me? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Okay. So, th- again, thanks for calling up, and uh, and thanks for adding the, your, your perspective. Um, and to speak to the all part, um, I don't think it's a fair comparison because when I say all, I, I prefaced it to say all the particular, you know, people that I was talking about in that moment, not all African-American people. Yeah, so, of course, that's what you mean. I don't, I'm sorry if I, I don't mean, I want to make it real clear. I'm sorry to cut in, but I do mean exactly the all that you're speaking of. I know you're, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry if I, if I even, even came on to not clarify that I thought you were speaking to all. I don't mean it that way. I'm talking about you referring to what, unfortunately, I'm saying ends up being a very small number when I look at the real number. I'm in Atlanta with you. I see the same affluence you speak of. But when I look at the economic numbers, for example, of Atlanta and it being the fifth worst country, worst city in the country for economic um, disparity, then I know that, in fact, the same housing that I can go to and see all these predominantly black people living in these amazing houses, I know the reality is that is a small, they are a very, very small percentage of the African-American community in Atlanta. So what I'm saying, you turn around and say all, you say it in a manner as if there are a lot. I'm telling you that reality is far from the okay. truth. They are not okay. a lot. Okay. And again, we're, we're, I just want to clarify because we're still saying two different things. So don't jump in this time. Let me, let me finish. Okay. And, let me, and let me say this. Again, I'm not saying you're wrong in anything you just said. I just want to clarify that when I say all, I'm not speaking to a lot. It's two different things. All does not mean a lot. All, in the way I said it, simply means all the people that I'm speaking about. When, I, when you heard me say all, I'm just literally talking about when I say all of the, the people that I'm looking at, I'm just speaking about them. So when I'm, talk, when I'm saying all, I'm talking about the small, tiny percentage of people you're talking about. That's it. I want to clarify that and make that clear. I'm talking about that small, tiny percentage. And then, uh, and I'm talking about when I look at my peers, even, even family and friends back in Philly, uh, I'm, I'm, te- I'm speaking and seeing the same, the same trends. Um, and I'm sure you would agree that the, I'm sure you agree that the African-American, again, let's just call it middle class homeowners, you know, living in these various communities. If we went back to um, just answer, can, just, can you give me a yes or no? And then I'm, I'm going to move on. If we went back to, let's say, 1960, would you say that there's more African-American people living the way we see here in Atlanta from the middle class um, level and up than there were in, in 1960? Just from the sheer no. uh, population. No, I know the numbers. Yeah, I know the numbers. No. Okay. All right. So, so what, unfortunately, I'm sure you, I can't put you on the spot and say you have the numbers, and I'm not saying you're wrong. Um, I'm making some assumptions. I'm making some, some, I'm making some hypotheses. And anyone can either call up and, and if you have some numbers, please do. Uh, Montoya, you can share them with me later. But the hypothesis that I'm making is just a matter of knowing population growth, knowing the whole idea of, you know, generational pass down and generational, you know, uh, trickle down, et cetera, exponential growth and population growth. But the hypothesis that I'm making and what I'm seeing just in the sense of how Atlanta has grown in population numbers in general that there's, you know, more African-American people that are living in these suburbs and these large communities and these subdivisions and these, you know, big houses and driving nice cars. That's the, kind of the assumption I'm making exponentially. There's more people getting, if you look at the, the numbers of people graduating from college across the board, 
just again, just from um, uh, uh, the exponential growth, there's more people, you know, graduating uh, than were, you know, many years ago and moving into the middle class space. On the flip side, I also know that there's more, there's that poverty is growing. And that leads me to my next point, the wealth gap that we often talk about, um, you know, within the, the between African-Americans, and European-Americans, I feel like I'm starting to see that a similar trend happening within the African-American community alone. And the wealth gap within the African-American community between the haves and the haves not and the have nots, it troubles me. And the reason why it troubles well, me is that looking at the numbers, Scott. I'm sorry, my hold on, hold on. Numbers, Let me finish. Bro. Let me finish, you know, man. You're not you even looking at the numbers for real, bro. Like you're making Let these me... hypotheses without looking at real numbers. All right, I'm, I'm, I want you to jump back in, but I'm gonna mute you out so I can so I can finish. I know how you do this. I know how you do a mental dialogue. I sat there and listened to you for five minutes while you talk, so I want you to give me a chance to speak, and then I'm gonna let you back in, man. You know it's all love. Um, so with that being said, um, again, bring bring the numbers. I'm I'm telling you, a hypothesis is an educated guess. I'm telling you and all the listeners, I'm okay with being wrong. I'm thinking out loud. Please don't be offended, people. I'm doing it from a position of love. Trust me, I want, to, I want solutions, right? So my point is this. When I look at the wealth gap and I look at the divide between the haves and the have-nots within the African-American community, it troubles me. And the reason why it troubles me is because, again, when I look at the results of capitalism, it, again, capitalism spits out exceptions and successes, and it also spits out extreme failure. Our education system, it spits out successes, but it also spits out extreme failure. And that's what I'm speaking against. I'm speaking against the mechanism. I'm speaking against the mechanism. So when I'm speaking out against group economics in the sense that when I hear people who mean well, I'm not knocking them. I feel like, Montoya, I feel like you're hearing me like I'm saying it's like people are wrong. I'm not saying that anyone is wrong. I'm not saying, I'm just giving you, I'm, I'm speaking in an uncommon commentary. And when I say that, what I mean is I'm sharing with you guys how I think about things differently. Right. And we're colleagues in, in common pursuit of solutions. We just come at it at different angles. So with that being said, I'm challenging people to think about things from a different angle. And here's the angle. As Montoya stated, he knows that I, I posit myself as a poverty abolitionist. I don't see any value in poverty in society. I see no value in it. I see a lot of pain. I see a lot of suffering. And even, you know, and within the African-American community, when I, I see all these people when I say all, I'm speaking specifically about the people who are thriving in the current economic system. And I see these people doing their darndest to try to pull people up. But there's something that I understand. And this is what I understand. I want to share with all of you why I think this way. Because I used to be in a position where I thought that those things were the answer as well. And then I took a doctoral course called systems thinking. And it totally changed the way I think about all the problems we see in the world. It totally changed the way I see everything, right? And when you're having a dialogue, you know, it's, it's, it's hard when we know that we're speaking based on different points of view because we all know and read and research different things and we may not have the same knowledge. So it's important that we listen to one another. And I'm going to listen to the, uh, the, the facts and the numbers that Montoya is going to share, and I'm going to accept them. I'm not going to fight them because, again, that's, that's his knowledge. I'm telling you, I don't have statistics. I'm making hypotheses based on what I see and based on things I read and I know. But just from a holistic standpoint, when I look at poverty versus success, I'm speaking about that. I'm speaking about capitalism from a systemic standpoint. And there's, when I took my systems thinking class, 
there was a book called Thinking and Systems that we had to read. And there was a, a quote from the author at the very beginning that has stuck out with me, and I've used it a, a bunch of times, and it always rings in my mind when I'm thinking deeply about these issues, and it's this. Hunger, poverty, environmental degradation, economic instability, unemployment, chronic disease, drug addiction, and war, for example, persist in spite of the analytical ability and technical brilliance that have been directed toward eradicating them. No one deliberately creates those problems. No one wants them to persist, but they persist nonetheless. That is because they are intrinsically systems problems, undesirable behaviors characteristic of the system structures that produce them. They will yield only as we reclaim our intuition, stop casting blame, see the system as the source of its own problems, and find the courage and the wisdom to restructure it. And that's by Danella H. Meadows in the book, Thinking in Systems. Now, for anyone who's listening to this that may be interested in learning more about systems, I'm going to include some links in the show notes. I wouldn't recommend starting with that book. Um, it's a very academic and a hard read. For those of you who like reading that type of stuff, then start there. But for those of you who don't, I would recommend starting um, at some sites that I'm going to place in the show notes and I'm going to place underneath this show on Facebook. When I repost it, I'm going to post a bunch of links. Um, but systems thinking goes along a, a lot of different fields, whether it be thinking, systems thinking about social issues, environmental issues, education, um, you know, business, economics, et cetera. But the key thing that I take away from what Danella said is that we've been, humans have been trying to solve these issues forever. And they've, they've invested a lot of t brilliance towards eradicating them. And no one is intentionally creating these problems. I don't believe that anyone is intentionally, intentionally creating these problems. I believe that they persist because they're intrinsically systems problems. They're characteristic of the system structure that produced them. So, you know, for example, if you had a car, a car is a system. And if your car keeps, you know, uh, stuttering, it's not because someone is a bad person that, you know, uh, or, or you're a bad person because you're driving this car or whatever. It's, it's literally the, the design, the way the car is designed, there was a flaw in the design. So now the, the car keeps sputtering. That's a negative feedback loop. That's a negative side effect of the design of that car. If it starts stuttering on you and other people are having the same issue and they do a recall, you know, on certain issues within cars because of the design. And I feel like poverty is one of those things within our society that is the design flaw within capitalism. And that's what I'm speaking out against. And I'm going to offer solutions as well. But before I do, I'm going to let Montoya jump back in because uh, I have some resources and I have some solutions and I have some some things that can, you know, for those of you who are listening and saying, Scott, well, that's just the way it is. We got to do the best we can. And what I'm telling you is, it's not an, anyone who's suffering. You know, when we look at, you know, any of the statistics, and I'll just say this before Montoya jumps back in. Like for me, the statistics don't matter because if one person is suffering, I feel like we're doing something wrong. I'm taking this from a very radical standpoint. If one person is suffering because of the, the model of uh, the, the systemic structures that we've created in this country, and we all know that millions upon millions generation after generation have suffered at the hands of, you know, the various negative feedback loops that have come from our economic models. So with that being said, that's what I'm speaking out against. So for me, this is not really an argument in the, in, the, in the micro. 
you know, about the um, I'm not making a case in the micro about, you know, the differences between those who are winning and those who are not winning within the various communities. The only reason I brought the statistics in about the European Americans is just to make a point in, on the onset to contrast it to, you know, the way I hear, you know, African-American people within certain segments speaking about certain issues as if they're only unique to African-American people in terms of poverty and things like that. And just to contrast it, to give all of you, the listeners, something to think about when you're thinking about these issues to say, hold on, if they've been practicing these type of things for all these years, then why are there still 18.9 million poor European-American people? That's what I wanted to challenge you with, because I wanted you to think about that and say, well, how can we move towards just eliminating poverty in general instead of kind of hanging our hats on, you know, incremental wins or, or you know, the fact that some people are winning. And if, as long as my family wins, as long as my kid, if we're talking about education, as long as my kid gets A's and goes to college and graduates, we're doing it right. And I just want to challenge that because the same kid in your kid's class that failed or that may, you know, have dropped out of school, we still got to face that person in society. You know, we still got to, got to, got to grapple with the, the failures roles in society as well. And oftentimes they come back to bite those of us who supposedly are winning. All right, Montoya, so I want to let you back in, man. What do you have to say? Yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to keep it quick. Um, I, and I, and again, you know, you always say that words matter and, and I would just throw out to you, I, and, and I want to. I want to say this too. I don't hear you. I mean, some, something you said. I you, you you think I can't. I can't even remember now. But you tried. To, you were suggesting that I'm hearing you as saying something's right or something's wrong. And I, I was going to try to clarify that that's not how I hear you. Uh, I am challenging you to to to. And I'm going to keep it quick because I we can do the numbers all day. So I'm just going to challenge you on one aspect that you quite often challenge the rhetoric and the verbiage that others use, and you're kind of missing that you you apply the exact same logic in your verbiage as well. So I know exactly what you mean. I don't, I'm not misunderstanding you when that what you mean by all. You know, I know you're talking about the all that you see, but logically, if I say, for example, uh, blacks are you know, you watch too much TV or on social media, for example, and that's backed by numbers based on the numbers that we can see. So if I say we, I'm not saying all, but you'll say to me, well, you can't just leave it out there without making a distinction. In response, you will turn around and might say, for example, I know all these blacks who learn from TV. I'm just saying from a rhetoric standpoint, if I must be careful and not just generally speaking saying we, then you don't get to have all as a response to it, to whether you're intentionally doing it or not to insinuate, because you will say, because what I see doesn't look anything close to the rhetoric you just used. Well, I somebody may have numbers to back that rhetoric, and you're just saying it based on what you see. So who's right? Again, you're not trying to be right but I'm throwing out for you to negate their rhetoric and you got to be careful with the rhetoric that you in turn use. If you're going to say, we need to be careful on how we speak or you, you speak to the opposite with hypothesis. I'm just telling you, you might want to go look at your hypothesis before you use your high, your educated guess to make some of your responses. 
Absolutely can I respond? Like for us. Yeah, go ahead. Can please. I respond I'm done. about I'm, that? I'm done. Yeah, yeah, about please. that point right there. So I, I hear you, and I'm 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 reflecting. And tell me if I'm wrong, because this is what I try to do. And what Montoya is speaking to, for those of you, Montoya and I, you know, he's the regular guest on Race Haven, if anyone's new. Uh, we also engage with one another in, in Atlanta, um, and we, you know, spend a lot of time in, in, in conscious conversation. So a lot, of the con- a lot of what he and I are discussing, there may be some, some things missing because we kind of know what we're talking about. But one of the, one of the things that he's speaking about is that um, the fact that I, I always say that we have to speak in com- we have to speak complexity in order to start solving complex problems. So I always challenge when people speak in abs- generalized absolutes. So I'd always, I always cringe when people say we when they're talking about, you know, African-American people as if African-American people are, you know, all the same or anything like that. Across the board, any, any type of generalized statement, I challenge in, in a lot of instances. So what I hear Montoya challenging me on is saying that, you know, the way I'm using all is I'm making a blanket statement. And what I want to ask, because what's not vibing with me, I want to own it if it's, if it's true. I, I'll own it. But I felt like, you know, when I, before I say all, I felt like I prefaced it. You know, like you gave the example uh, of me. You, you said, um, which one did you just give? Um, I just made up one. I made up oh, one about TV. Oh, about TV, about TV, about people watching TV. Well, let me, yeah, let me give it for that one. So when you said, um, you know, I'm, man, you can't be on social media without seeing, you know, a, a, a segment or a handful of people. You know, we all, we, we, we all, and this is an assumption, and really it's some of us have friends who um, will say, man, y'all need to turn that TV off if people start commenting about the latest, you know, let's say gossip within the entertainment world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us have that friend on social media that says, y'all need to turn the TV off, and that's the problem with African-American people. Uh, we watch too much. We watch too much Empire and, you know, reality TV, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things that um, Montoya puts out there at times is that the TV is the dumb box. And so one time, one, one day I responded that a lot of people um, learn, a lot of people learn um, a lot from, from watching TV. So, and you, you use that as an example. And I feel like I, I preface it by saying a lot of, or there's a segment of people. And even in the conversation of today, when I use all, I felt like I prefaced it to separate, you know, the various people that I'm speaking about. So I just want to say that I, maybe I didn't do a good enough job, but when I, when I use all, I always set up and preface. I always try to, and I may make, miss it sometimes, but I try to preface my statement to clarify that a segment of people or a group of you know, people that I'm talking about before I start using a, a word like all. So okay, go ahead. You had any other point? Oh, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah go ahead. You no wanna, problem. No you problem. So here's 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 a quick way to kind of I'm throwing out a you know I want to throw it out to you real simple, uh, you know for example to understand it. So let's just use a set number, um, you know because I agree people learn from TV. Of course I call it the dumb box or whatever, um, you know because most people don't use it to learn or whatever is you know that's why I say it. But let's just throw out for example. Uh, we got 100 people, and 80 people just use a pure entertainment person, persons and not learn anything. And you know 15 people who who actually, you know, not, not only learn something, but like you said, they even go into the industry and become industry titans because they took such an interest in TV. And so 
if but but if I have numbers to say that well these people who watch TV this is kind of how they perform and it's 85 people and you have 15 people I'm just challenging you when your response to me is I know a lot of people if your real number is 15 I understand that you know people I didn't when I say we I'm not saying a hundred so you, when because you know like I don't even think you I don't even think you say just even think say the words generalized absolute the fact that you would hear that way the reason it's general because the person knows they're speaking generally they have information that says too many people do this thing that's not good for them or too you know you may say something good people generally do this well this group does this generally well because you know everybody doesn't do it so when people say we they're speaking general, you're hearing it as an absolute, and your response, even though it may be a small number, you like to use terms a lot and all, and the reality is it's a small number. So I'm just asking you to think about that when, you know, your response should be, well, there are some people who don't do that, but that person that spoke generally, response would be, Scott, I know there are some people who don't do that, but you like to say there are a lot. Or there are all these people that are doing it. I know you're only talking about your preference, but that person knows that because they're speaking in general. Okay, so I, I wanna, I wanna, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna respond because this is actually, I actually plan on doing a whole show about this whole language thing because it's something very important to me, and I'm, I want to respond. We can get into it because this show is not just about my commentary; it's about wherever the callers want to take it as well. So because Montoya breached that topic, I'm gonna uh, take a brief break and then come back. And, and, and respond and kind of expand on, um, you know, some of my thoughts about why it's important to not use terms like we um, or, you know, they. I think it's so important. But I'm going to come back and do that uh, in just a moment. Uh, but before I do, I want to, um, you know, ask a question to all of our loyal listeners here at Race Haven. This is episode 28. Uh, we're a year and uh, a year and a couple of months in. Uh, of doing this show, and I appreciate all of you so much. And my question to you was this. Do you get value out of listening to Race Haven? If yes, consider becoming a patron of the show for as little as $1 a month. Your support will assist in the growth and maintenance of the show, and I would greatly appreciate it. So visit racehavenpodcast.com and click Become a Patron to learn more about our goals for the show and about the cool perks you can earn for your support. Again, that's racehavenpodcast.com. Click on become a patron and you'll learn all the details about the goals and the perks that you'll get for supporting this show. And I also like to take this time to thank all of the patrons of the show. Those of you who have supported the show, who support the ongoing maintenance and growth and quality of the show, it is so appreciated and you help the show go forward. So with that being said, uh, let's jump back to the show. And I want to jump back into uh, Montoya breached the topic that uh, is near and dear to my heart, and that's speaking in, speaking in complexity. When I look at all, a lot of the problems that uh, face society, I think that they're com- I, I I believe that everyone would agree uh, that they're complex issues, they're complex problems. And one of the things that I notice, and and just as a, a kind of our culture, is we speak in general terms. We make blanket statements a lot, and I've actually started. Uh, making notes uh, for a, a book that I plan to write at some point, or or it might just be a blog post on the topic. But I've been making, I've been like 
taking down some of these blanket statements that people make. And eventually I'm going to like either, again, do a blog post or, or put it into this book and or both and um, kind of highlight what I'm talking about. Um, so what what I've said to Montoya in the past and what I'm saying now is that when people say things and, and I'm always thinking about the next generation, I'm always thinking about how things are heard. And when people make blanket generalized, you know, statements about we or they, I feel like that prevents us from getting into the complexity and the layers of what's really going on. And it's something that is very like you may think you may be listening. You think it's very petty and it's very minor. But when someone like what Montoya said, he said to me that, Scott, you know, when I say we, I mean, you know what I mean. You know, I mean most or a lot. Like it's assumed, it's implied. But what I'm saying is we have complex problems in society. And one of the reasons why complex problems persist is because we don't think or speak. In a lot of cases, not all, we don't think or speak in complex ways. And the way we think and speak is is usually based on the patterns of thinking and speaking that we grew up around, that's an, this, it's environmental. So if you grew up in a place, uh, an environment where the people around you, they explain things to you in detail, they answer your questions in detail, they elaborate it, and you were able to freely ask questions to dig down the various, to, to, to dig through the various layers behind people's statements, then you're going to grow up thinking and speaking a lot different than a kid who may have grown up in a household where someone says, um, you know, don't ask any questions, you, you know, when adult or if adults are talking or the answer to your question is because I said so. If the answer to a kid's question his whole life was because I said so, then that kid never understands the underlying feelings, beliefs, thought processes, reasons, the, the complexities behind the various decisions that the adults in his or her life was making. So now that kid's going to grow up with, a, with a, a more narrow view, potentially, in most cases, than a kid who grows up in a space where if the parent says, you know, we don't throw our coat on the floor, and if the kid says why, if the parent says, well, the reason why is because, one, your coat could get dirty. Uh, two, it makes our house look dirty and unkept, and mommy likes to keep the house looking neat and clean because one, it makes me feel good about my house and where I live. And two, when we have guests come over, I like for those guests to, you know, view our house as a neat and orderly place. So now that kid, again, grows up processing information in a totally different way. So, at, so that's the point. That's just an example of what I mean when I say it's important that we elaborate instead of saying, we and they and making blanket generalizations because it puts us in the habit of thinking through and going deeper in terms of digging deeper to find solutions to the complex issues that we face. Does that make sense, Montoya? Uh, absolutely. Um, and the only thing I'll say to you is I want you to hear clearly, and, and I hope this, listen, this is okay for the listeners, because like you said, we're doing this from a lot of conversations between each other, so I hope this is interesting to the listeners. Um, but since you are speaking to it, I just wanted you to know, as your friend, I'm actually challenging you to listen to what you are advising others to do. What I am challenging you on is 
you actually speak in return to the person you're saying don't generalize. I'm actually challenging you that I think you're unaware that sometimes you speak back generally and and don't. Because in some of these issues that, that we've had that I'm telling you this on, I'm telling you you would actually find that if you were to speak back specifically as you're suggesting that they do versus generalizing, you'll find out you actually in some of these issues have met very much very, a lot of common ground. I'll give you an example to make it very clear. I, I kind of made up an example, but um, if you hear the statement that you know that that, that 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 you cringe at because you hear it as an absolute, as a general absolute, well, when if you say to someone who says, well, you know, we're obviously talking about race, so if you say, well, all black people do this, and if you said to that very person that made you cringe, if your response is say, no, brother, well, uh, some black people do this, that person will respond to you and say. Oh, they were only speaking in general. They, they, they haven't learned what you're teaching them, so they're only speaking generally. But if you were to say, yeah, well, some of them do this, they'll say, oh, yeah, I understand that. And so now y'all can go to another conversation. But if your response to them is, no, there's a lot of people doing that, and that's not the case because you're generally speaking back to them, then we end up bogging down on a conversation and have to go into statistics to see is your lot right or is your sum right? Is your if you would speak that specifically, you will find that you can actually move to more solution talking by doing the exact same thing you're challenging others not to do. That's what I'm challenging you. So let me make sure I'm clear. And if anyone's listening online and you want to get into the conversation, you can call up with any topic race related. It doesn't have to be specifically about what we're talking about, uh, race or social, you know, social issue related. The number is 929-477-4107, and make sure you press 1 if you want to speak. So, Montoya, what you're suggesting is that when someone makes a statement like, um, you, know, um, you know, we don't know how to save money. You know, I hear, I hear that's one that mm-hmm. I, I'll hear right there. Mm-hmm. You know, if mm-hmm. an African-American person is, you know, in a space and out of, out of a place of, you know, usually out of a place of caring and, and wanting to see, mm-hmm. you know, African-American people win in general. Um, they say, you know, we, we, just don't, we just don't know how to save money. You're suggesting my response. Instead of me saying, but that's not true, a lot of us do know how to save money, you're suggesting I say what? I would suggest um, if you're going to say to that, because when you're responding, you're trying to see if they're generalizing or being factual. So your response should be more of, hey, Brother, that's not true about all African Americans. There's definitely segments that have under, that financially understand how money works and are in fact saving money. Which you will find typically that person that generalized, their response will be in complete agreement with you because they understood that they were only saying, you know, a, a general, generally speaking. So when you find out that that's their response, now there is. No argument about stop saying that. Now you both can speak to how do we get more people saving more money, considering that, you know, just giving a stat, for example, like 90% of our community don't have $1,000 saved. Like that's a real number. So when somebody throws out we don't save money, they're, talk- they're probably talking from an actual number. Ninety percent of African American okay. people who are descendants of enslaved Africans don't have a thousand saved. That's what you're saying, right? 
you got to send me some links where you get these numbers from. Okay, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. Um, so going back to um, going back to you know the the initial well, you, commentary you point. If, if that, do you understand that just that little aspect that your oh yeah 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 definitely. I, just I be simply, don't say a lot back to them. Just say what it is, and you'll probably find common ground. Is my only thing I'm saying. Oh no, sure. I accept. I'm, I, I apologize. I, I should have said that. I was thinking to say that, but then I came back with a question. Okay. Yeah, but that was actually the first thing I wanted to say was yeah, thank yeah, you for for sharing that, and I, I'll I'll be more mindful of that. And you know, again, that's what dialogue is all about. So I appreciate you. Um, you know, I re- I received that 100%. So with that being said, um, I want to put some uh, another uncommon commentary thought out there and. Again, Monte, I know you're going to have thoughts about this, and you've heard me play around with this thought a little bit. And I've kind of, I, I wanted to, I, I wanted to elaborate on it and just put it out there. And it's a, it's a thought process that I'm do, still researching and I'm still learning. But I want to put it out there for the listeners because I think it's going to give people something to think about. And whether you agree with it or disagree with it, I think that it's at least going to spark some thought. So, um, the thought is. The thought is this, and, um, and Montoya, I'll put you back on mute, and if you want to jump back in, I'll check in with you in a moment here uh, to hear your thoughts on this. But so as I think about, you know, critiquing this, okay, again, I told you guys I'm a systems thinker just based on, you know, the, the direction of the things I've been exposed to and what I've been able to learn and what systems thinking has done for me in terms of broadening my worldview and how I see problems as systems issues and not people issues. So with that being said, I've elevated to a level where I used to focus on a lot of the issues that face African-Americans in America. I used to focus on how those issues impacted African, from an African-American standpoint, um, because I'm African-American, even though, of course, this show, you know, I speak to everyone and, you know, I believe what I'm saying impacts everyone, but I'm going to speak to it from an African-American standpoint. As an African-American, when I thought about a lot of the issues facing African-Americans collectively, um, I thought about it from a standpoint of the oppression of systemic racism and the institution of what this country was built on, which is the concept and the actions of something called white supremacy. And I know some people listening to this, um, you know, there's different views on white supremacy. I don't want to spend too much time, but if you Google white supremacy, I'm not talking about KKK. Actually, I'm going to give you the definition of white supremacy I'm speaking on. I'm speaking about um, white supremacy is a racist ideology centered upon the belief and the promotion of the belief that white people are superior in certain characteristics, traits, and attributes to people of other racial backgrounds, and that therefore, quote unquote, white people should politically, economically, and socially rule non-quote-unquote white people. White supremacy has roots in scientific racism and often relies on pseudoscientific arguments for, uh, that, portray, excuse me, that portray white superiority. So that's what I'm speaking of when I say white supremacy. I'm not talking about you know, extremist groups. So the country was built on those ideals, right? So with that being said, a lot of the issues that I would, you know, when I thought about issues, I said, okay, these issues are a direct result of, you know, this institution of white supremacy and all of its ills, like slavery, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration, and et cetera. And that's correct. You know, that is correct. You know, that system of white supremacy is res- the responsible for a lot of the, um, you know, the ills 
that 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 plague African American people uh, that have plagued African American people generationally, and that unfortunately still has its tentacles on many African American people in different ways throughout society, and we don't have time to unpack them all now. But as a systems thinker, I began to, to dig deeper to understand this more, and I began to question if that was the place to stop. And I wanted to, I wanted to understand, well, what supports, because I understand that everything is, is a system, I wanted to understand, well, what system does white supremacy fall under? What supports it? Which, what system gives it its power? And I thought about it like this, and I'm going to start even lower in a, in a lower subsystem group. You see, racism, I'm going to start with racism. Racism is a tool uh, of, of race. Without race, racism wouldn't exist. And race is a man-made social construct. All these systems that I'm speaking about are man-made social constructs. And what that means basically is that a, a human being actually created these things. Human beings actually created the idea of race. They actually said, you know what, we're going to create something called the races, and we're going to call, you know, the, the Europe, we're going to call Europeans Caucasian, we're going to call African people Negroids, we're going to call Asian people Mongoloids, and we're going to call, you know, the natives, uh, I forget, there was, enough, there was one more that I'm missing, but these uh, scientific, what scientific racism is steeped in is the idea that, obviously, the things I just read, that Europeans are more superior because of the shape of their skulls, because of their intellect, and da-da-da-da-da-da. And they created this concept called race. And then throughout slavery, they began the idea, you know, there's black people and there's white people and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then they built these laws and social norms that supported the ideas of white supremacy and race-based discrimination. But without race, there would have been no racism. So where did race come from? Well, race came out of what I just said. So I started with racism and I said, with, and racism in itself is a system. Race is above racism and that's a system. And then above race was white supremacy. Without no white supremacy, there would have been no categorization of these races in the way that we know them in terms of the social construct that we experience it here in America and actually throughout the world now. Because as we know, co colonialism uh, through Europeans going out, they colonize a lot of places throughout the world and various um, continents. And they, and they spread these ideals to a lot of places. So, so white supremacy supports race. And it powered race, but what supports and powers white supremacy? That's where I that's where I where I, where I got to. And when I thought long and hard about it, I realized that it was capitalism. And I thought like without white supremacy, there would be no race. Well, guess what? And this is a broad statement. And this is really going to rock some people. And I don't even know if it's true. Again, I'm hypothesizing. I'm thinking out loud, but I'm going to make this statement. Without capitalism there wouldn't be a need for white supremacy. And what I mean by that is, again, white supremacy is based in the idea of power. It was, it was created to justify the means of which Europeans went out into other continents to acquire power and resources. And they put out this doctrine to, again, justify and support the accumulation of these po this power and resources. And so to justify my thoughts, I started researching capitalism or to, I guess, go deeper, not to justify, but to go deeper. Again, this is a thought, I, this is a thought experiment. So I said, well, without capitalism, which is a complex system created as a means for private owning, trading, and acquiring goods and labor, and the competitive nature 
is the competitive nature of capitalism meant that there were always winners and losers. That's a, de- a short de- definition that I pulled down. So I'm going to say it again. So what is capitalism? Capitalism is a complex system created as a means for private owning, trading, and acquiring goods and labor. And the competitive nature meant that there were always winners and losers. So it, without capitalism and without the need of competition to go out and get more, without the need for manifest destiny to conquer more lands and spread, you know, to, to gain more resources. And back when capitalism first go, started uh, expanding into new countries, it was, again, to acquire resources like, like, met, like precious metals and land that they could claim and, and parcel and sell and, and have private ownership and free market, et cetera, et cetera. And all these ideals that built capitalism that came out of feudalism, where feudalism was just, you know, kings and queens, uh, you know, controlling people by force, came, you know, initially, uh, again, I don't, I don't want to get too deep into it because there's so much to unpack. I'm just high level. You guys will do your own research, right? But, you know, out of, out of those things and the reasons that, you know, that were formed, capitalism formed, um, came white supremacy. And I posit that we can't go back to change history. So everything unfolded the way that it unfolded. But here's the thing. Man made it. Man created it based on the, the evidence and the, the knowledge and the skills and the technology of those times. And what I'm saying is based on the advancements and the, the technology, I'm sorry, the knowledge, the technology, the information, the social advancements that we've made as people and as humans, I believe that it's high time that we create the next system. It's high time that we stop doubling down and investing in the very system that is the source of all of our oppression. And I believe that beyond, when I'm speaking to African Americans, beyond systems of white supremacy as being a source of oppression in various ways, I'm saying that capitalism is the key source. It is the root cause of oppression, not just for African people, but for all people who are not a part of that top 1% in the world that hold the wealth. You see, capitalism literally was born, it was another way, a, another form of the feudalism where the kings and queens used violence and force and fear to, to get the things they needed to survive, which back then was literally just food and, and having people farm and do labor. Well, they consolidated all the, the force and the power with just them. And then when capitalism opened up, Power still was consolidated with the people who had the most resources and the most money. And that has continued. And again, it gave more people an opportunity to, to try to climb that ladder. But ultimately, it still produces so much disparity. And for the sake of time, I won't go into all of it. So what my call to action is and the purpose of this show, and, and, and when I said that I wanted to challenge people to think and I was speaking specifically to African-Americans this time, but ultimately I'm speaking to all Americans. Um, what my challenge is, is what I'm saying is, is that capitalism is the source of all Americans. And actually, when I, let, me, let, me, let me go back a step. The majority of working class, middle class, and no matter where you fall on the socioeconomic ladder, I feel like the source of all of our oppression, when we get away from just monetary, um, you know, markers of success, capitalism is the source of all of our oppression in the way that it is implemented in society. 
whether it be you, got a, you have a ton of money in a bank and you have a good paying job, but you have to travel all across the world and you're away from your family every single day, every single week. Or you have a ton of money and you're working 40, 80, 90, 100 hours a week just to maintain a certain lifestyle and your quality of life sucks. Is that really winning? I question what success is. I'm challenging people to question what success is. And more importantly, I want everyone to understand that these are all man-made social constructs. And if, if, if dead people made these social constructs hundreds of years ago, why can't those of us who are alive today get together to start changing them or to create something, not change them, to create something new? And what I'm here to tell you is there's people already doing it. So one of the solutions that I want to share is there's an organization out there called the Next System Project. And if you go to thenextsystem.org, you'll see where they are curating proposals from people from all around the world about the next system. And there's some really awesome proposals being shared. But beyond the proposals, there's also people writing papers on things that people are already doing in various places around the world, including here in America, that are already creating models independent of the current economic model and capitalistic, capitalistic model that we currently have today. I'm going to give you three particular uh, articles and, and proposals at the site that I love. One is called Growing Justice, Transcending Racism in the Food System. Right here in the U.S., it talks about people and communities who are taking actions, who are not just relying on the current food system, but are taking actions and creating new models for sustainability in their communities. There's another one called the Next Health System. The Next Health System blew my mind when I read that. There are actually communities of people who've created their own hospitals that are totally independent, where they take care of the people within their, their jurisdiction. They serve the people, doctors, nurses, who are working with the people, for the people. The, the, the hospital is owned by the people, supported by the people, et cetera. It is totally self-sufficient. They have their own health care system. It's, this is happening right now in several places. And this paper called The Next Health System lays out how to do it and why it's important and how it will change the, the, the system, the whole health system as we now know it. And the latest one that I've been reading and sharing on Facebook is called The Economy for the Common Good. Again, it's already happening. Some of the things that are being said in, in, this, in this proposal it's already gaining traction. There's over 400 businesses around the world that have already opted in to change their practices to make sure that the bottom line is not to make money for owners and shareholders. The bottom line is to make money to produce towards the common good, produce for the common good of man, the common good of society. That's what economics should be about. It should be like nature. It should be a cycle where we produce to, to, to help people grow, to help people be healthy. The fact that right now we all know that healthy food is actually harder to get than unhealthy food, and unhealthy food is easier and cheaper to produce, and it's justified because it makes people more money. We can look at any industry in America and then ultimately in the world because we have a global economy, and the things that 
increase the bottom line in a lot of cases hurt people. And it's, it's like we've come to accept, a lot of people have come to accept that as just it is what it is. And what I hope I'm being a voice and what my goal is and what I tried to challenge people with with the approach that I took to get, you, to get the ears and the listeners to share my uncommon commentary, ultimately I, wanna, I hope that I'm empowering people to look into some of these alternative models and to stop sending your children and yourself and your family down the path that's already been laid because it's going to keep producing the results that we've always been getting, which is some good and a lot of bad. And again, for the sake of time, I know there's a lot of context that's missing from a lot of these statements, but some good and a lot of bad. And I think in your mind, you know what I'm talking about in a lot of ways. I can give us several examples. I gave the food system. I gave the health system. So check out the nextsystem.org. That is a solution. It's a radical solution. And people are doing it. And here's the other thing I want to share with you. Because these things are happening, and a lot of us just don't know about it. And I just started learning about these things in 2016. There's something in America right now, an organization called B Corps. So you know you can form a business that's an S Corp or – you know, it's an S corp or it's a, uh, a C corporation or LLC or a nonprofit. But now there's something called B corps, benefit corporations. Some of the largest companies in America, companies and name brands that you know, like Warby Parker, Ben and Jerry, Patagonia, um, Honest Tea Company. These are just a few I could think of off the top of my head. But there's uh, Kickstarter. There's a lot of companies that are becoming B corporations. And the awesome thing about becoming a B Corporation is that you have to take a, a B Corp assessment and you have to make it public knowledge that shows you have to answer these, these questions that dig into how you're using your, your profits. Questions like, what's the difference between the highest, what's the income difference between the highest earner and the lowest earner in your company? And you have to say, you know, it has to be at a certain level that's it, there's certain indicators and markers that show what a healthy level is versus the unhealthy level in terms of the income dis, uh, disparities that we see in America and a lot of places in the world. And that's one of the things that the economy for the common good gets into. When they, when they um, poll people from around the world, the people say that a 10 to 1 ratio is probably best. But in a lot of companies, it's a lot more than that. And in some companies in America, it's 350,000 to 1 in some companies where the highest earner earns 350,000 times more than the lowest earner in that specific company. Imagine if it was 10 to one, imagine if the, the highest earner in a company earned 500,000, that meant the lowest earner earned 50,000. Imagine what that would do. But these are the type of things that this, these assessments for these companies who are becoming B Corps, these are the type of things they have to face and grapple with. And they have to answer these questions about their environmental impact, how, the people that they're hiring to work for their company, the diversity within their company, the social justice aspects within their company, the, the gender equality aspects within their company, and the economic you know, equality and justice aspects within their company. And several companies are already doing these things and opting in. And if we start asking the, the suppliers, the businesses we go to, are you a B Corp? Are you a B Corp? And we start making them aware that this is a movement that's happening. If we start spending our money with B Corps, Right. That's how we change the world. 
because there's people that are already doing some of these things. And I want to encourage you guys just to, I'm just trying to spark your interest in hopes that, you know, all the entrepreneurs out there, you'll look into what it means to be a B Corp. My company that I'm, that I'm building, I have a mobile app company that, that I'm building right now. We're going to be a B Corp. So it's things like that, that, you know, that are already happening that give me hope. And I hope it gives you hope. And I believe that if you read the economy for the common good, that it will give you so much hope. If you read the next health system or growing, growing justice at the next those things will give you health. I mean, give you hope as well that yes, we don't have to settle for only some of, some of us winning and some of us losing. We don't have to settle for a fact that there's going to be poor people. That's just the way it is. No, it doesn't have to be that way. I haven't even gotten to education, but I'm going to share links to solutions for education as well, because I believe that our current education system hurts people. That's why I walked away from it myself in 2012. I'm not saying it hurts people because the teachers are bad. I'm, saying, I'm not saying it hurts people because the kids are bad. I'm saying it hurts people because the system is designed that way. It's intrinsically designed within the system for social stratification. I learned that in my doctoral studies in one of the history of education books that I had that one of my teachers gave, and they pushed us and challenged us to think about things in this way, to challenge the status quo. And when I read that education was designed for social stratification, literally to keep people where they are, if you're poor, we need you to be poor. If you're middle class, cool. If you're upper class, cool. You'll be the owners. If you're middle class, you'll be our, our mid-level managers. If you're upper class, you're, you're being designed to be the CEOs and owners. If you're middle class, working class, you'll be the managers and supervisors. And if you're poor, you'll be the, the laborers, et cetera. And education was designed for that. It wasn't designed to help everyone move up the ladder. It's not what it's designed for. Education is designed to give us exactly what we've been seeing. I have a problem with that. We're all humans. It's just a matter of how well we decide to treat one another. Every system that we're talking about was created by man. So why can't we ch change it now? Men and women together of all ethnicities coming to the table to change things and create a better, more just world that, was, that is more equitable. I believe we can. And what, you know, what, what makes me feel good is that I'm not alone. The nextsystem.org, look at all the names of the people who signed on. If you scroll to the bottom, there's a list of hundreds and thousands of names of people who signed on to get behind this movement. Montoya, you have any thoughts on anything I just shared? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's people with your type of past, your type of beliefs that, you know, that come up with these systems, or as you said, you know, in this situation, you're sharing these other ideas that, have, that you found or whatever along the way. So, I mean, the reality is um, every system that we speak of, though, really just came from the challenge of another system, this idea of capitalism and socialism, and to jump all the way back to your very beginning uh, when you were just kind of giving the layers of, you know, for, for example, from the African-American community, which obviously I speak to that perspective quite often myself. Um, you know, I will just throw out to you that uh, historically what we have so far for any system that has been adopted on a large scale, the, the failure, unfortunately, has always been the infallibility of human nature and greed to a certain extent. So what happens is, for example, even white supremacy, for example, it it, it doesn't really matter technically which economic system that was in play. Uh, the things that you will see consistent are, for example, over-policing. And then even when you get outside of race, when you go back historically before the social construct was even put on, you know, on, on, our, on the world, per se, uh, you'll see that different systems, same thing was in 
in in play as far as whatever group they wanted to oppress and had in in, in most systems that historically we study around the world has nothing to do with race at all. But if there's a difference or a fight against another group, you will see the same tactics, and it is ultimately predicated, you know, behind greed, which you know once it seeps into a system, you're gonna have those those issues. I don't say that to say don't strive for other systems because again, every system was born out of a reaction to you know whatever systems in play. So you know, we, yeah, we're at that stage now. A lot of things that we're watching happening worldwide and specifically in the United States, eventually, if this the system of capitalism per se plays out to where there are too many have-nots because we are seeing that gap, that, that gap wide for all cultures and races, then eventually the people, and that's why you probably, that's why you have these pockets of communities already perpetrating. So whatever system that became large scale, it, it's like any other business in that standpoint. It, had, it takes marketing and buying people like you sharing it and more people doing it. And if it, if it gets loud enough, you see small pockets take advantage and already put it in place, which is usually easily, easily scalable on small scales. The issue typically with every system and the failure happens once it's typically applied on a large scale just because of who in that system chooses to be greedy. That's what you will see. Um, you know, the issues that you have really with any system, socialism, feudalism, whatever it is that we want to come up with, it's usually some person introduces greed and makes that system fail. Just so, just an overall thought process. I mean, I'm in agreement with you from the standpoint of, you know, you can't even change the system if you don't even think of these other systems. Uh, but, you know, I will even just throw this out um, as a small defense of capitalism, not you know, which may sound crazy to you, but just from a standpoint, in comparison to what exists now, when you go system versus system, you know, you will find that it is capitalism, for example, that created a middle class, because typically before middle class, the world literally existed in a have and have not uh, existence. So the fact that there is even a term such as middle class there are people who take capitalism and brag and say, well, that's what's created that. Or you can even look at the United States, and the United States might say, well, in comparison to a lot of countries, yeah, we have poverty, but it's at 13% for the entire country compared to, you know, this, you know, certain countries around the world. Now, other countries and even outdo that number. So, you know, I'm just kind of throwing out, you know, when you think of it from a large-scale thing, the beauty of what you're doing, it kind of has to get born when, when a system starts to fail the majority of people. And we know that, that, that tip. No, the ex- excellent context, man. And, um, you know, the other thing, too, you know, and I think other, I want to challenge other people to think about not just your bank account, but to also think about your quality of life. Because I think a lot of times people think that they're winning just because the bank account, um, not everyone, some people, not all, you know, may think, you know, I'm winning because my bank account is a certain way, but I have a lot of conversations with people, you know, who, A, may have certain careers that make great money, but they're not happy. A lot of times, people who go and, and you know, get degrees and, you know, have to go end up going back to school or, you know, switching their careers a bunch of times because they followed the script. That's the, the script and the, the linear script that's available, but they very rarely took time to really think about, you know, how their, their true passions and skills align with various opportunities in the world. And that's all a part. That's just another flaw in the design of the system in terms of education, which, you know, again, I don't have much time to unpack, but, you know, that's one of the ways that education is flawed. You know, it's just 
follow follow step by step, you know, standardized connected dots type thing, but it doesn't deal with the dynamicism of human beings in terms of our, you know, innate interests and skills and talents. And therefore, a lot of people get to their adult life and now they feel trapped because they have all these bills and all these debts and they have this job that pays a certain amount of money that they have to continue to maintain because they have this house and this, these kids. And, you know, and then it's like, but dang, I never had a chance to really think about who I am. And, you know, I never had a chance to develop and cultivate me. I never had a chance to really, you know, create and carve out a, a, a quality of life. Uh, I was listening to a book um, and, and, the guy, and it was mentioned, one of the books is going to be in the show resources called Out of Our Minds by Ken Robinson. And it was mentioning, you know, a guy mentioned how, you know, yeah, he, he sees that he's a 70 year old guy and he noticed that, you know, more people around him have more than ever before. He said, but on the flip side, their quality of life is worse than ever before. And he gave the example how, you know, a lot of people are, you know, he's seeing in the business world where people are nowadays, you know, it used to be a time where when the Christmas holiday rolled around, people slowed down and stopped working and stopped taking meetings right around the middle of the month, around the 15th. And he said, nowadays, people are taking meetings the week of Christmas and still traveling and they're getting back to work where it used to be mid-January. Now people are getting back to work and taking meetings right after the first and just saying that everything's speeding up and, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we're producing more and people are making more money and there's more opportunity in a lot of instances and in a lot of, you know, ways, but at the same time, quality of life is dying out. And that's a part of the economy and a part of capitalism as well. And those are the things that, um, you know, that the, the, the economy for the common good speaks to, you know, how people, you know, we, we, a lot of times you, you'll hear people say that, you know, we need to be more involved in our communities and we need to spend more time with our kids and, you know, um, or be more uh, politically involved. And those things take time. And a lot of reasons that people aren't, it's not because they're negligent, it's because they, they're serving the, the needs of, of, of maintaining a certain lifestyle. And there's a lot of conflicts in that. And the economy of the the economy for the common good speaks to all of that, and it speaks to solutions for all of that, and it speaks to you know again if you look at our health, a lot of our health issues are born from you know that lack of balance. So these are the things that I'm I'm passionate about and I care about because I believe that we all of us deserve it, and I believe that if we continue to operate from a bottom line only mentality about what success is, meaning the amount of money in the bank account, if we continue to operate from that standpoint, then I just don't see that as, um, you know, overall productive, you know, from, from my perspective and, and overall, you know, healthy from my perspective. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I definitely respect that. I respect that. Here's the, here's, here's the thing. Uh, this is the, the beauty of human innovation for, again, like if you think about it, even capitalism, for example, it was, it used to be the economy for the good at the time when it came, even came about. Again, just adding context perspective. But here's oh, no the doubt. Of, here's the beauty of children. See, the millennials already reject everything we've been taught and honed to believe. And, and so to some things that, that the society hates about them is the very things that they're going to ultimately create because they already come to jobs asking about life balance, things that we don't think to ask to until we've reached a certain position because we've earned a certain spot to be able to say, well, I would like to have more vacation time. They come in asking for vacation time. It looks looks weird to to our society because of how we were raised, but it doesn't look weird to them, and that's why they create all these amazing work out from home and beautiful computer apps and come up with Ubers and the Airbnbs because they don't think on this very bad paradigm that you are right does get applied to typically 
those with less privilege have less access, and so you right. fight to to bring that access to to the masses. So to a certain extent, human innovation is going to get there. It's already there for a, a number of people, but not the masses, which is your concern, and I agree with you, my concern as well. Uh, but you know, just generally speaking, yeah, more people are starting to realize what we were taught, and from a mass standpoint. It, it, it's definitely not the way to go, and 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 we're people like you is the reason why we're gonna head, you know, in a different direction. I I will say, uh, while you know, just to throw this out, without the tearing down of white supremacy, and again, I don't think it's it's, it's definitely started and, and and pushed fully forward because of capitalism, just because of the type of greed that even created the idea of if it needed to exist. So I will agree with you from that standpoint. I will say for all the innovation that is about to come back about, without the eradication of white supremacy, there is a strong possibility that you will have an underclass that does get left behind in all of the new new innovation because they, the, the, the system can be set up to keep that class from never understanding the things you just talked about. You're you're absolutely right, and uh, everything you just said is right. Um, so the first thing I want to speak to is, and then we're, I'm I'm going to go ahead and close it out. Um, but when you said, you know, how we we every generation builds on the gains of the previous generation, um, you know, um, one of the place I'm I'm currently taking a, a, a online course on systems thinking at the Unschool, and I'm going to post a link for that as well um, as a refresher and as I continue to learn systems. Um, and the the woman, her name is Layla. I just can't pronounce her last name, but her name is Layla. And she says, you know, one of the things that she always says is that today's problems are yesterday's solutions. Today's problems were yesterday's solutions. So we have to continue to evolve and continue to innovate, um, you know, because of that. And that's kind of what you spoke to. And then the last thing is when you said, um, you know, um, you talked about, you know, the issue of white supremacy and that system and, and how it still has so many you know, negative uh, impacts on society. And one of the things I always posit that I, I won't, we don't have time to get into in this show, but I believe that it has uh, uh, the, the, the institution or ideal of white supremacy also negatively impacts uh, European Americans in a lot of ways as well, just differently than it does, you know, African Americans and not and, and other, you know, ethnic minorities uh, in terms of population. Uh, it impacts them as well. Just some of the negative feedback loops and side effects of white supremacy that that pushes back, uh, that causes stress and tension in their lives. That's also a result of the institution of white supremacy and is also why it's in their best interest uh, ultimately to help eradicate it. Um, but again, that's for another show. But in terms of going deeper into that, but ultimately when I think about, you know, how to get rid of white supremacy, I think that again, if we go to the root, and we can design it out. If we go to the root and we re redesign the economy, then we'll design out that greed that supports white supremacy. Um, and that, you know, everything that it was built on, it will literally be designed out. And again, I, I hope that many of you will listen, to, I'm sorry, will go and, and read The Economy for the Common Good um, at the nextsystem.org. I'm going to post the links on my Facebook page and then all the Facebook groups, as well as on my website, uh, racehavenpodcast.com. Um, and you'll be able to click the link to read it, because if you read that, uh, the economy for the common good, within that framework, there's no, there's no room for white supremacy. There's no room. And that's one of the things I've always thought about, because systems thinking is all about design. It talks about design a lot. 
And one of the things that Layla talks about at the unschool is about design. And you can literally, we can literally design white supremacy, race, systemic racism, and all those things. They can be designed out of society, similarly to how they were designed into society. And that's what we need to continue to work towards. So ultimately, that was my challenge for today. You know, and I appreciate all of you for listening. Those of you who stuck with us the entire time. Um, so those of you who are listening to the podcast and you're, you know, pausing and coming back to it and you're getting through it. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you listening. Uh, thank you to Montoya for calling in and contributing his thoughts today. It was more like a traditional race haven, you know, show with when, when Montoya, myself or, and John, you know, we get together and we dialogue on a topic. Uh, that's what this ended up being. Uh, again, I'm piloting this whole call in, you know, uh, format uh, to, to see if there's people who have interest in calling in and dialoguing about various topics, asking questions and sharing perspectives. Uh, I know race is just a, it's a tough topic. And also, you know, having it being spoken about out loud, like the way that I do it, I know there's other people that do it. I just know that it's not being done, um, you know, in this way where people across ethnic lines are coming together, uh, which makes it challenging uh, for some and out of the norm for some. And just from conversations I've had, I know that there's some people that just would rather not. Because uh, they're, uh, you know, the, again, just the, the post-traumatic stress of all of this that we, we've been born into is too much. And some people just don't have the energy, you know, to, to dialogue across ethnic lines and, you know, look at it from a holistic standpoint. And I understand that. And, you know, I just appreciate it if you're just listening. But um, I'm going to try this format a couple of more times to see if we can get some callers, uh, some midday callers who may be able to call in on their lunch break or some of those, you know, those people who work from home or some entrepreneurs who can call in and, um, you know, we'll go from there. We're still going to continue to do the dialogue shows and the, uh, the interview shows. Um, but just piloting this whole, um, you know, call in, you know, the people calling in to share thoughts and ideas and questions, uh, for a couple of more weeks and we'll see how it goes. So with that being said, again, thanks for listening. Thanks for your time. Be sure to subscribe to the race Haven podcast on the iPhone podcast app or Stitcher radio app for Android so that you never miss the dialogue. And if you love this show, please leave us a review on the podcast and Stitcher apps. This will help the show gain more visibility and listeners. Also, if you love this show, if this show adds value to you, please consider becoming a patron of the show for a little, as little as 12 bucks, $1 a month uh, by visiting um, racehaven.com, excuse me, racehavenpodcast.com and clicking on become a patron and help us reach our next goal and help, you know, with the quality and maintenance and growth of the show. Um, also, if you want to share any thoughts about the show, please do so uh, by sending us an email at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com or join us on Facebook at the at Racehaven Podcast to continue the dialogue. You can also join our online chat community by joining the Racehaven Community Dialogue Facebook group. And to close out, I want to share what a Racehaven is. A race haven is a safe place for people from diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, and assumptions, excuse me, questions, assumptions, frustrations, and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America. Remember, we are all smarter when we think, when we think together. Love y'all. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast. Be sure to visit www.racehavenblog.com to comment and learn more.